Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Or like it's Linus who's beheaded and he uh-huh. picks up his head and continues his sermon and then dies. You can't continue a sermon. You can pick, I've heard well, about the, people picking up It's like their the story though. I mean like it's like the tradition no, but of like the church. In the, in the French Revolution, there oh, was yeah. a guy that was beheaded and picked up his head. It was nasty. I mean, we, yeah, we don't focus on that gore. We're really into it. Welcome to Gospel Tangents, the best source for Mormon history, science, and theology. I'm Rick Bennett. We're continuing our conversation with Dr. Christina Rossetti from Utah Tech University in St. George, Utah. We'll continue our discussion where we talk about the beginnings of Mormon fundamentalism. So Christina will kind of walk us through that, and she'll talk about some other groups that we haven't talked about so far the Harmston Group, the TLC Group, Robert Crossfield, and we'll even get her opinion on Under the Banner of Heaven. So you don't want to miss this conversation. Check it out. How did you learn about this? uh, Reading Mike Quinn, reading just scholars who had, reading Brian Hales, reading Craig Foster, reading just more and more. Because Brian's got a lot of stuff on fundamentalism. Right. And also... um, like uh, Craig Foster and Newell Bringhurst, Brian Hales had done a lot of work on post-manifesto polygamy. Right. And that was like a fairly new idea for me that because I had heard in Institute especially that polygamy ends in 1890. <laughs> it's it's um, probably news for most people who sit in the pews too. And I heard some kind of strange justifications for polygamy in Institute. Um, one woman told me that it was because, you know, the story that so many men died crossing the plains, but polygamy starts before that. Right. So I was like, wait a minute. I heard it started in Nauvoo. Um, so just that was kind of interesting to me. Um, and then it was just to take care of the widows. It was just, to, there was, yes, there was no, no such thing as the anointed quorum. None of that. Um, but, and then continuing to like read through these um, brilliant people and the documents, realizing it doesn't end in 1904 either. After the read smooth earrings. I was like, what? A lot of scholars have written a lot about that. And that was interesting to me. And as I'm kind of learning about post-manifesto polygamy, I meet Mormon fundamentalists. You meet them? Yeah. 
At Sunstone? Uh, at Sunstone, at um, MHA, at um, the Church History Library. They come to MHA? I've never seen them at MHA. <laughs> Fundamentals come to MHA. Uh <laughs> Craig Foster's co-author, Marianne Watson, is a Mormon fundamentalist. Oh, yeah. I forgot about her. Okay. She's brilliant. <laughs> she I, wrote, know, I, I think, one of the greatest. trying to get her on, but she seems quite camera shy, apparently. Her um, article on the origins of placement marriage, um, brilliant. Highly recommend. It's from Dialogue. Highly recommend. It's field-changing for... Study Mormon fundamentalism. Put in a good word for me with her. <laughs> Just shoot her an email. Her yeah. husband's the prophet now of the AUB, I think. That is Did you know correct. that? Yeah, I know that. you didn't know that. Of course you did. Um, I'm still jealous of you. You've been to Christchurch Temple. I have. And I haven't. And you're not even Mormon. <laughs> I'm not. And I talked to David Patrick. You know David. Yeah, he was and here. And I was like, I have a temple recommend event. Do you have the right temple recommend? No, Rick? that's the problem. Right. Um, but yeah, I realized that polygamy doesn't end in 1890. It doesn't end in 1904. It doesn't end in 1933. It never ends. And It ends officially in 1933. I but I mean, say. it doesn't end in general. It ends in the LDS church. Right. But it doesn't end... I mean, it's still Broadly, going. it's still yeah. going. Um, and that was interesting. What I was actually more interested in, I wasn't so much interested in the polygamy. I was really interested in the line, how the line of authority worked that allowed for it to keep going. Right. That's what really interested me. Um, and so... And some of my listeners might not know that. Do you want to tell that story? Sure. Um, so it's really kind of the story... It's a complicated story. But the story that a lot of Mormon fundamentalists tell is that in 1886, John Taylor's in hiding... And he's in hiding largely because of the federal government is starting to disincorporate or is considering disincorporating the church. It's disenfranchising women. It's threatening to do a lot in terms of the territory. Um, it's a really difficult time. And John Taylor is in hiding. And a lot of his associates are saying, you need to inquire of the Lord of what to do about this. With the idea of maybe he would get rid of polygamy, maybe. right? I mean, John Taylor was ride or die for the principle. <laughs> like, if a prophet was going to get rid of it, it wasn't, wasn't going to be Taylor. John Taylor. <laughs> no. I've, heard, I've heard speculation that when Wilford Woodruff became president, people were like, oh, he's going to get rid of it. Have you heard that? I haven't. Oh. It does. It's, it, yeah. I mean, I can, only, can you imagine? John Taylor is probably like rolling over. Like... I don't know. It's a tough one because like John Taylor was like, John Taylor was willing to die for this. Uh, John Taylor. Well, he died in hiding. He died in hiding. But John Taylor believed Brigham Young. Like Brigham Young says that you cannot become gods, even the sons of God, without entering into the practice of plural marriage. John Taylor believed him. Like John Taylor was a believer in this. And so John Taylor in, eight, in um, 1886, he ends up, he's in Centerville, Utah. And he ends up going to pray. And in some of the, in the later accounts, so this is one of the complicated parts is that later, we have accounts from later on, but later, uh, one of the men who was there, his name was Lawrence C. Woolley. He recounts that he saw a light shine from under the door that John Taylor was in. And the story goes that over a period of eight hours, 
called the eight hour meeting. Mm -hmm. Um, Over a period of eight hours, he met with the resurrected Jesus Christ and Joseph Smith. And he comes out with a revelation. The revelation is authentic. It is written in John Taylor's hand. The later events regarding it are where it's a little, or it's where it's a little murky. Um, But he ends up writing a revelation, which basically says, none of my commandments can be revoked. None of my ordinances can be unchanged, can be changed. Thus saith the Lord. Um, within the context of the revelation and everything, it's assumed that that means plural marriage is here to stay. So that happens. Now, the 1886 revelation is not unique for John Taylor. 1882, John Taylor's really saying the same. Like, John Taylor's always saying this. Like, this isn't unique. What makes this story unique, though, is in 1922, Lauren C. Woolley starts telling a story that changes everything, where he starts telling people not only was that revelation there, but John Taylor set apart a group of men to continue the practice of plural marriage world without end. And Lauren Woolley argues ultimately that he is one of those men and that he is, has the authority to perpetuate plural marriage. Um, this group, he eventually ordains other men. This becomes the Council of Friends. This is the modern fundamentalist movement or when, when it really begins. Um, all of the men which who, leads to the FLDS, the AUB, and all the all other of the groups. groups. Right? Yeah, so pretty much there's yeah. some that kind of outside that, but. kind of outside. But in in the 1950s, there's a big split in the Council of Friends. Um, the split is over somewhat a controversial ordination that happens. It's over how we're going to do communitarianism. It's over how we're going to do a million things. Um, and there's a big split. Um, the split ends up following in the line of John Y. Barlow on one side, which becomes the FLDS, and Joseph Musser on the other side, which becomes the AUB. So that's kind of, and then from there. Uh, within that, though, um, Lewis Kelch was one of the early men within this movement. Um, he's kind of considered the father of the independent movement. So independent Mormon fundamentalists have existed from the inception of the modern Mormon fundamentalist movement. Um, so it's always been, it's been a diverse movement ever since then. Um, but that was really interesting to me in how the priesthood claims and the authority claims were reconfigured in a time where people were really struggling with what to make sense of the end of polygamy. Like, what does that mean? Like tangibly, that sounds so complicated. What does the end of polygamy mean? Like, how do you do the end of polygamy? Does it mean mass divorce? Does it mean like what happens to the kids? Are the men not involved in these kids' lives anymore? What happens to the women? What happens to the children who were taught that you have to be polygamous to go to heaven? What happens to this? What hap- what is, what, how do you do this? How do you end polygamy? Um, and so the 1910s, 20s, I mean, free dissertation idea, the 1910s is so understudied. Um, but the 1920s, 30s was this time of really trying to figure out what are we going to do? Like, how are we going to be Mormon in America in the 20th century? Um, And so that was just so interesting to me, especially with the relationship with the LDS church, that some LDS leaders were still practicing polygamy or still um, solemnizing plural marriages. Um, Some of them were like friends with the fundamentalist movement, um, which again, of course they were. They're in Salt Lake City. They're all going to church together. Of course they were. Like, um, I'm just, I'm in copy edits of a book I wrote on Joseph Musser. And one of the really interesting things about Joseph Musser, his mission president was... So we're going to have to have you back on for your book release? <laughs> um, Joseph Musser's mission president was Jay Golden Kimball. Um, oh, really? Yeah, Southern States. And Joseph Musser's excommunicated. He and Jay Golden Kimball continue writing each other letters until Jay Golden Kimball dies and Joseph Musser goes to his funeral. 
like they that's a this is a complicated time of being excommunicated being an apostate it for polygamy at least didn't it wasn't i mean he's friends with jay golding kimball still right like it's a complicated thing and so that that was what was really interesting to me is how do these multiple expressions of mormonism interact together in this time where what it means to be mormon is a big question wow wow well, and I know that uh, Rulin Jeffs knew Hugh B. Brown and Gordon B. Hinckley. Yeah, he was married to Zola Brown. Yeah. Um, and Hugh B. Brown's Homer Brown was friends with the movement. So there's a lot of... Homer is Hubie's father? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, Homer Duncan Brown um, was friends with a lot of the fundamentalist men. So, well, it is kind of funny because you have the the 1890 manifesto, and so the idea was, at least publicly, and I mean, right. I should say the public idea was, okay, we're not going to make you divorce all your wives. You know, you can still be a good church member. Right. You can still come to church. Just don't take any more. Like we're done. Right. Um, so the the idea was we're going to gradually just wind this down. Right. But. Uh, they had but it's, kids it's, that didn't want to wind it down. Right. I mean, it's hard to. So in 1909, so Joseph Musser, I, I know I mentioned him a lot, but he just happens to be the early member of the movement that I just know the most about. Right. Um, Joseph Musser goes to a disciplinary council in 1909. Um, he's called to a council in the Salt Lake Temple. Imagine going to a disciplinary council in the Salt Lake Temple. Uh, and he, in his diaries, he complains that he had to wait 20 minutes. Um, oh. He just had to like sit and wait. Um, but he's called into a council and the men in the council, you know, it's it's Heber J. Grant, it's Anthony W. Ivins, it's Rudger Clausen, and he looks at these men and he's like, really? You're going to excommunicate me? You're going to do, really? This is what you're doing? Um, and he like, he calls him on it. He's like, who amongst us has not agreed with plural marriage in recent years? <laughs> Uh, and especially, so they were going to excommunicate him because he had taken up. They post. were disciplining him, so there wasn't because he had taken an, another wife. Yeah, so he, after nineteen oh four, at least. Yeah, nineteen oh six. Okay. Um, John W. Um, sorry, um, Matthias Cowley uh, seals him to Mary C. Hill, and Matthias Cowley in the Quorum of Twelve. Yes, um, seals him. This, so nineteen. So th- this is why Matthias gets dropped from the quorum. Um, not necessarily just because of Musser's ceiling, but Musser's ceiling was, was among was among them. Yeah. Um, he and Joseph Musser was sealed again. Um, to nineteen oh six is also when David O. McKay became an apostle to replace Matthias right. Cowley. So there's, I mean, there's a lot going on. Uh, Musser was sealed again by Judson Tolman, who was a patriarch back when patriarchs had sealing authority. Um, Judson Tolman is like renowned for being a sealer of the fundamentalist movement or sealed a lot of people. But Messer goes to a disciplinary council in 1909 and basically says, who amongst us has not done this? And he like, he knows, he looks at Heber J. Grant. He's like, you're a polygamist. Not currently, right? But you had, you practiced polygamy. Right. Like Heber J. Grant's the last polygamist. He's, he's an apostle at the time. Right. At the time. Um, he's the president of the quorum of the 12. Oh, Heber was president? Yeah. Cause he's going to be the prophet next. Right. And oh, did he replace uh, Joseph F. Smith? Yes. Okay. Heber J. Grant and George Albert. Smith. Oh my gosh! David O. McKay. Where did you learn that? Oh. Uh, <laughs> did Lindsay teach it to you? Been around. 
Um, <laughs> I don't know that song. What? You didn't learn that in primary? That was not a primary song when oh. I was in primary. I'm old. <laughs> Latter day prophets are number one. Oh my gosh. So um, it's actually how I memorized them, to That's be fair. Awesome. It's how I learned them because I, I realized I should know them. Maybe I should learn that song. <laughs> oh my gosh. It was the easiest way for me to learn them. But uh, it's how I learned the books of the Bible, too. Like I still have to think about the Bible song. Um, but yeah, so he. He also does the loophole thing where he says, this is out of order. None of you are my stake president. Well, he's got the second anointing, so he's like... Well, he does have a second anointing. He does, that's true. He does have a second anointing, but also that's true that none of them are his stake president. And oh. that is the order of how you're supposed to go about discipline in the ah. LDS church. Now, the problem is his um, stake president, um, William Smart, is a polygamist. So... I was not going to discipline him. And like he and smart had like this, we're considering like creating, recreating the United order. Like they were doing a lot. Um, and they had, they were, they were business partners. Smart's not getting rid of him. So are not going to discipline him. Certainly. So the 12 actually had to discipline them themselves. Well, this is the best part of the story. Nothing happens. Oh, that's it. He's let go. Really? Yeah. Nothing happens. Until 1921. Okay. But that's a long time. Yeah, that's 12 years, yeah. And it only happened because there was like a kind of story where what's hard is he was accused of courting a woman, Marion Bringhurst, um, and plotting to be sealed to her. Um, no, that, no, he's got to relate. It, she's got to be related to Newell, right? She is. I'm sure, yeah. Um, but none of... That never happened. He he didn't court this. He denied it. He denied it forever. And the ceiling never happened. Hmm. So there was no ceiling. And he, in his diaries, in his private diaries, he denied this ever happening. And he notes, he's like, she's a great gal. Not married to her. At all. Um, and then, so he is finally excommunicated in 1921. Um, his excommunication is posted in the Deseret News. Does he have any other marriages after 1909? He's, he's so one of the hard things is, um, you know, I mentioned I wrote his biography and I'm still trying to figure out how many ceilings he had. How many do you know of? Uh, well, so what's hard is Marianne Watson, she noted 15. So but I, don't, 15. I don't know many of their names. So I know that he was married to Rose Selms Borquist. Uh, he was married to Ellis Arship Jr. That is... Um, Ellis Ship, Ellis Reynolds Ship's daughter. Okay. Um, Mary Caroline Hill, uh, Myrtle Anderson, who's only sealed him for like a minute. She pieces out pretty soon. She doesn't like so it. So she divorces him, basically. Yeah, she doesn't like it. She moves. She leaves Utah. Um, but a lot of uh, Marianne Watson noted knowing, like knowing about her. So that wasn't. I thought it was like this moment where I like found where Brian Buchanan and I were looking into the documents because we're publishing Musser's Diaries with signature books, and we thought we found a, wife. a plural wife. And Mar and Marion Watson was like, no, we all knew about her. And I was <laughs> like, of course you did, because... Um, and then uh, Lucy Okamech, um, who Lucy is... Um, her, her and her sisters are married to many of the men in the council. So those are the ones that 
we have solid firm evidence of their ceilings. Um, but I don't know much about the others and I don't know their names, but according to several people who like Marianne Watson, there were more than that. I just don't know their names. Hmm. So I do note that, that there are additional ceilings. So Marianne Watson says there's 15, but she doesn't know the names. We were at MHA when she told me, so I didn't ask her um, to like continue this (laughs) rabbit trail. Um, but you know, what, what is difficult is that fundamentalist ceilings, especially in this period are very hard to find documentation for. Um, and so I wonder why, like just yesterday, <laughs> could Brian, it be a secret thing? I know just yesterday, Brian Buchanan sent me a news clipping of a woman and he was like, I think this is one of the saints wives and just for a variety of reasons. So he's looking into that right now, hmm. but um, yeah, so I was I was just so interested in how these like multiple ways of uh, more, multiple lines of authority happen, how they manifest in the present. Um, it's just been such an interesting story. Wow, very cool. And then I did get to go in a temple once. Yeah, <laughs> I've only ever been in one LDS temple, so. Oh, you've been in the LDS. Are you coming up to Saratoga Springs? You can go in another one. Well, I'm waiting for St. George. I'm waiting April. for St. George. Oh. The OG. Well, if you, if you want to go in April, Saratoga Springs open house. I'm waiting for the OG <laughs> temple. <laughs> uh, but I went to the um, open house for Jordan River. Okay. And so, um, well, you were asking me beforehand. So we've got the St. George Temple. And what's the other one called? I think it's called Washington Fields. And it's nearby here somewhere? It's like... Right, I don't know. It's by it's by Quick Quack Car Wash <laughs> in Washington. Well, it's in St. George. Oh, it's in St. George. Yeah, so it is in St. George. So this is another city with two temples. It's gonna be another. Yes, uh, yes, it is. But apparently, the St. George Temple um, is busy, and it is pretty small. Right. So, and there are a lot of LDS people here. So, I mean, I don't know. Well, and you've got Cedar City too, but yeah. Right, Cedar City has a temple, and Vegas has a temple. Right. Um, I think that's about it in the area because the next temple after Cedar city is probably Payson. Yeah. Um, unless you want to go to Monticello, it's a different direction. But, right. Yeah. Or, or Manti, I guess would be. Yeah. Manti is closed for renovations right now too. Right. But that's closer than Payson. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I have a, I have a student who just got married, um, and they, they got married in the bountiful temple. Okay. Well, I'm just telling you. Saratoga Springs open house is April, May, and June. I'm not going to drive to Saratoga Springs. Oh, come on. You got to go to Salt Lake for something. I do. I will will drive up for the Salt Lake open house when that finally happens. But I was talking to the, during the planning or the getting ready for the Juanita conference, I was talking to the mission president in the tabernacle because we used his space. Um, And he, he and his wife said that the Salt Lake temple might not be done for a few years. Yeah. Yeah, supply chain problems everywhere. But I will, I definitely going to plan to be there for the St. George one, just because that's such a historic building. I'm scared to see. Well, actually, I guess they remodeled it years ago. And the plans for it, if you go in the visitor center, the plans for it look beautiful. And it is a, it looks like it is like a true, um, like restoration of it, and that it does look more true to the original. Oh. It looks beautiful inside. Like the plans for it that they did really do look beautiful. 
Um, I know there was a lot of controversy with Manti and Salt Lake. And Salt Lake. I haven't heard a lot of rumblings. I'm scared what they're going to do to Salt Lake. I don't, I don't know. I have heard a lot of rumblings. I haven't heard any rumblings about St. George, though. People just seem pretty happy with how it's going. They did add a big addition to it for an entryway that is kind of similar to what Salt Lake has. Okay. But I don't know. When did they stop using the actual doors on temples? I don't know. <laughs> on the historic temples. Um, I mean, that's just where they take all the pictures for the weddings now. Yeah, but like, did they, th- those doors had to have been used at one point. I would think so, but I, I couldn't, I can't tell you. I hmm. don't know. Interesting. I'm not a, I'm not a pioneer temple expert on that, so. Same. All right, so we were talking about the split in 19, is it 1950, the split? 1954. And so that's where the Well, there's FLDS, like a, there's contestation between 1952 to 1954. Okay. The 1950s, there's a split between the FLDS and the AUB. Mm-hmm. Um, I know. I and they believe, don't have those names yet. That's yeah. an important thing. Yeah. And I mean, I guess it was kind of the All Red group and the Jeff's group. They called, or? a lot of them called it the work. The work. Mm-hmm. I mean, fundamentalists. On one side in, or the other or? A lot of fun, a lot of, um, so a lot of fundamentalists in Short Creek, especially during like Leroy Johnson's presidency, referred to what they were doing as the work. Um, so varying names, but the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints um, isn't incorporated until 1991 as like an official entity. I thought it was 1980. It was 91? Really? It was that late? Oh, I didn't realize that. Wow. Um, and the AUB... Um, didn't they organize more in the 80s though? Yeah. No, absolutely. But like, I mean, yeah. in terms of like an incorporated entity okay. with like recognition for this name and like the entity of what it is. Okay. And then the AUB was in what uh, year? I don't know the exact year that the AUB was incorporated formally. Was it before or after? Any idea? Oh, it was before. It was before. Okay. Yeah. They were in the early 70s. And so, um, well, and I understand you're a TLC, which is the Harmston Group. Yeah. I wrote um, one chapter of my dissertation on the TLC. Um, I've submitted the True and Living Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, right? The True and Living Church of Jesus Christ of Saints of the Last Days. Oh, okay. <laughs> we got to mix it up a little bit. The Red Brick Store um, with Jim Harmston. Um, their buildings are still there. The signs are down, though. Like the in Manti, yeah, in Manti. Um, the when TL- did he kind of get going? So the TLC was it was really interesting to me for a similar reason because, like, if you don't have a line of authority, how do you start? And Jim Harmston was a really interesting example of someone who doesn't have. He's not connected to the Council of Friends. He's not connected to Musser no. or Woolley or any of these men. Um, and he very kind of out of the blue emerges as a fundamentalist leader. He incorporates his church in his church starts, it's organized in 1994 and his church is organized through the true order of prayer. Um, what ends up, so a lot of families, would you, could we call him kind of an independent fundamentalist? So early on, so he had a, um, like a Bible study, like a Sunday school Bible study type thing that he would do in his home. Um, and he, a lot of people traveled from like all over to it. Like it was a really well attended Bible study that people loved. He was really smart. He was charismatic. He knew the doctrine. He knew the the scriptures. Um, Ogden Kraut went to it for a while. It was He's like with all the groups. Though, I learned that. I learned that from Anne, who I know you okay. had on. Um, that it was he attended it. Like so many people say, like oh my aunt went to it, or a lot of people in the fundamentalist movement have some connection to knowing someone who went to it. And in um, 1994, 
some families at the time had um, altars in their home, had home altars. Um, altars have a long history, of course, in the LDS church. And altars existed in stake centers sometimes. Um, but some families had them in their homes. And Jim Harmston was one of those families that had a altar in his home. And one evening in, in 1994, he kneels at the altar with his wife. Um, and in the later accounts of this, the veil opens between this world and, and the next. And he is ordained at the hands of the apostles. But there's, I mean, there's varying stories to this. In some accounts, um, he sees the three Nephites. In some accounts, he sees the great patriarchs of old. And all that to say, he is instructed that he is a re-restoration, that the restoration has become, has fallen so greatly into apostasy that on one hand, you know, Lauren Woolley tells that there is an unbroken line of secession. It's just outside of, the, for priesthood, it's just outside of the LDS church and the institution. Um, Jim Harmston makes the argument that it is so corrupted that there had to have been a re-restoration. So he's things. the new Joseph Smith. And he is that. He's the reincarnate. He is a reincarnation of Joseph Smith. Oh. Through multiple mortal probations. Um, one of the interesting things with him. Like reincarnation? So multiple mortal probation. So from my understanding, from um, speaking with um, a couple form, former members of the TLC, um, is they would ar- they discussed how it's a little different than reincarnation in that you can only be born into this into a human body gendered the same gender. So um you could only <laughs> Well that would be a problem, really. <laughs> you could only come back as a a man right. human being. You couldn't become anything else. Gender is eternal. And so that would be the family proclamation. And so that would kind of be their subtle distinction. Um, but multiple mortal probations is an interesting doctrine that has historic roots. Um, a lot of them will trace it back to Heber C. Kimball. Um, Heber C. Kimball talked about how if you are not perfected in this life, maybe you'll get another chance and another probation, another probationary period. Um, they also draw on Brigham Young, who Brigham Young had some comments that basically all men will have to become saviors of a world before attaining their final exaltation as God. And so through a lot of these 19th century doctrines, the TLC um, came up with their own understanding of multiple mortal probations, that all people travel through multiple probations before attaining their final exaltation. Um, Many would say, one of the really kind of interesting things about the TLC is that the TLC would give patriarchal blessings. And in their patriarchal blessings, many people learned their past probations of who they were in their past lives. Um, So some people would find out that they were partly Pratt. Some people would find out that they were really kind of great figures of old. I was just going to say, they're never just like, yeah, you're Joe the Slave or something, you know, a no-name person. You're usually not the person in the Bible that is like, and four people traveled alongside. You're usually not that person. (laughs) Uh, But, and they understood that though in a very particular, because I I asked that question um, and they understood that, that if you were a member of the TLC, you were among the elect of the Latter-day Saint tradition. So, of course, you were going to be someone who has traveled through significant past probations. If you landed in the TLC in this life, of course. You were elect. Of course you were elect in the past in your in a past probation. So um, they have this theology that works in that way. Brigham Young, a lot of Brigham Young um, and then later fundamentalist leaders talked about passing through different offices. Um, Joseph Musser really elaborates this in his um, pamphlet, Michael, Our Father and Our God, where he talks about, and Ogden Kraut somewhat, but Joseph Musser really does, where there's different offices of God, of the Godhead, 
and there is the father office, the salvific office, and then the witness testator office. And some would say that you have to pass through the office of witness testator, and then you have to become a savior of the world, and then you can finally attain your last exaltation. So because of this, um, a lot of fundamentalist groups talk about Joseph Smith being the Holy Ghost, that the Holy Ghost does get a body. He gets it in the fullness of time. Joseph Smith is nothing if, as a prophet, a prophet is nothing if not a witness and testator. Um, and so Joseph Smith is the Holy Ghost. Um, and then potentially is in a salvific office prior at this time or in, a, in the past few years and then attains his final exaltation, which is the assumption. Um, Jim Harmston ultimately makes the claim that he is Joseph Smith, come again, and, the therefore, and therefore the Holy Ghost. Wow. Um, so he, I've heard from a couple um past members, and so I can't verify if this is true for the TLC, but uh, one former member mentioned that there was some talk that he was in the office of um, Elohim. I can't verify if that's actually... So yeah, who was in the office of Elohim? Jim, Har Jim Harmston after his death. Oh, um, he's, so now, he's now Elohim because he went from Holy Ghost and he got promoted to Elohim. Through different offices, so I can't verify if that's TLC I mean, doctrine. is this kind of the Adam God ladder, you like... Yeah, so I mean, the Adam God doctrine. Um, a lot of people associate with Brigham Young. Of course, they do because of his sermon, um, and that. But the fundamentalist movement doesn't stop there. They definitely build on the doctrine and elaborate on how it all interworks. Joseph Musser's "Michael, Our Father and Our God" is really kind of the quintessential work that extrapolates and goes beyond just what Brigham Young said to really try to make sense of this idea. Um, the way he does it is really cool in the book. Um, and so, and he's really where we first start to see, he and Lorne Woolley, where we first start to see that Joseph um, Smith is the Holy Ghost. Um, and so they really kind of build on this idea. And Jim Harmston really grabs hold of this. And people come to believe that he is Joseph Smith. What is interesting is that he dies on the anniversary of Joseph Smith's martyrdom. Hmm. So, which only... Just from natural causes? Um, he has a heart attack. So, okay. Yeah. Um, but I mean, Jim Harmston though. How old was he roughly? I don't remember how old he is. 60? I wrote this so long, so okay. long ago. <laughs> it was such a long time ago. Um, I, I mean, I, it is always important to mention that, um, as much as Jim Harmston was beloved and, um, has such an interesting story, there are significant allegations of abuse right. within the TLC totally that are thought. always worth noting, um, and always worth discussing. Um, there is a... Um, book by a woman named Rachel Strong, who talks about her experience in the Harmston group. Um, so that's just something that is worth noting, that it did become um, widely known in the state of Utah for underage marriage. It did become widely known for abuse. So um, that is also absolute, like a part of the TLC story that can't be just kind of brushed over and not told. But um, yeah, I mean, there are, what's so interesting about the fundamentalist movement is most of them, of course, trace their lineage to the Council of Friends, but there's fundamentalist movements, fundamentalist groups that are born all the time. I know. You're like, I'm aware. <laughs> I've had some on my podcast. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're, I mean, Christchurch comes out of the, t out of the AUB, um, Centennial Park comes out of the FLDS, like all the time, just new religions. Well, and there's, I don't know if you know, you probably don't follow RLDS schisms like I do, but uh, there's a new church. The Everlasting Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter Days. 
Oh. Jim Van Cannon, who was an early guest in my first year, um, he was in the Remnant Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Okay. Not, not Denver Snuffers Group. Right. Um, this is Fred Larson. Okay. He, he was, they were incorporated around 2000, I think. Um, Fred lived into his 90s and probably two, three years ago, he was... I think he was what like was 95. The... He died. They had a, a schism. Right. And so Jim was in the first presidency. He was Sidney Rigdon. Um, Terry Patience was the Quorum of the Twelve Pro- Apostles. Love he that. was Brigham Young. Brigham Young won. Right. <laughs> Jim schismed and Everlasting Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And that's just within the last couple of years. Wow. And so if I, I went to... Independence, and it was so weird. I got this really dumpy motel uh, in Independence, and I saw the sign for the Everlasting Church, and I was like, oh my gosh, that's Jim's church. <laughs> what was the There was like a name that they used um, when, Community of Christ, when Community of Christ emerged, the people who wanted to remain RLDS. What was the name that some of them used? Do you remember? Restorationists? Restoration Branches. Yeah. That's the name that I was looking for in my head. Yeah. That so. just came to mind. Uh, those are the only two kind of that I know is that there's Restoration Branches and then there's Community of Christ. Yeah. If you go to Independence, like just drive around. You've got oh, I'm the, sure. The Restored Church of Jesus Christ of, Jesus, of Latter-day Saints, the Remnant Church of Jesus Christ, the Everlasting Church. <laughs> like you're just like, there's Mormons I'm everywhere. Sh- I mean, I think well, They don't call themselves Mormons, but I do. And that's such a... I mean, again, free dissertation and book idea. Like, there's so much talk about the different groups that break off from Brigham Young and the tradition that comes west. Oh, yeah. But there's just not enough history. Like, I I am completely uninformed about the breakoffs from the RLDS. Oh. And there's different groups that are that all connect themselves to string. So, I mean, well, I you know, love that history. And that brings up... Uh, Two things that, that that are kind of related, um, you know, Bill Russell talked on my podcast recently about Jeff Lundgren, who most LDS people never heard of, but he is the Ron and Dan Lafferty of the RLDS church. Yeah, I remember during when Under the Banner of Heaven came out, a lot of that came up. Right. On, I mean, I saw it on Facebook, and that was and that was the first time I had heard about it. Was seeing yeah. people post on like different Facebook. There groups. was a recent pod podcast um about ron lundgren i'm trying to remember what it was called and it's like a murder podcast where they talk about different murders yeah. um let's see if i can find it here really quickly um i just subscribed because i mean i'm i'm as fascinated at uh oh who, the podcast is called who killed dot 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 question mark and um Let's see if I can find the... Uh, dot, dot, dot. It's the February 2nd, the Kirtland Cult Killings, Part 1 and 2. It is marked explicit, so there is some language issues there. Language. But they go into that big time. And uh, I mean, it's funny, Jeff Lundgren, because he's not... I mean, he's a former RLDS, so right. they hate polygamy. But he wants other people's wives. Yikes. <laughs> it's just crazy. Yikes. Um, and it's a terrible, terrible story. Um, under the Banner of Heaven, did you have anything to do with that? or nope. No? Okay. No, I mean, I wrote an uh, article for Religion Dispatches. 
but no. Any impressions of it? Is it accurate, inaccurate? Um, I mean, it was definitely fictionalized. Um, a lot of the, there was a lot of additions. The part that I think is, was so interesting, um, was, did you see it? I have not seen it. And I'll tell you why. Okay. Um, cause I'm a cheapskate <laughs> and I wanted to get the, it was on Hulu, I think. Yeah. Right? And I was like, I knew that if I signed up right away that I wouldn't get to see the whole series because it was over six weeks or something and I wanted to get the free one-month subscription. Right. So I waited a few weeks and then everybody's like, it's not worth watching. <laughs> so I, didn't, I never watched it. Well, I mean, so I... Was it worth watching? Um, I mean, if you like true crime, I, li- I mean, I watched... But it was fictionalized. That, that, that was the big was. issue. The, the detective was a fictional detective. Like he was... What I heard, the critique I heard was... He was to represent like a faith crisis guy. Like they invented him. Like he was like a composite character. I mean, he was based on someone not related to the story, but he was based on a person who was a police officer. I liked it. Again, I'm not um, LDS. I'm not you don't connected the, to this story. I mean, you went to a young single adult ward, but I went you're to not. A YSA ward. You're not quite into the culture enough. Would you I'm say? I'm not connected. You understand it I mean, enough? I'm not connected to the story enough. For to have had like a really strong opinion about it, um, I've. I mean, I used. I used, I stopped listening to true crime. I used to really like my favorite murder, and then I stopped listening to true crime a couple of years ago. So, but, I mean, I liked it. Um, the part that I thought was so interesting about it. Um, there's a scene in the second to last episode, I believe, where Ron goes to Oregon and he is at like a ranch and he's like, there's like frolicking and wine. And then he's baptized by this man who kisses him. And a lot of people were really scandalized and they were like, what is happening? Um, but one of the interesting things about that was someone, um, a fundamentalist man, um, was consulted for that scene, um, because that was a real group in Oregon that Ron Lafferty looked into for a the while. Bundies? <laughs> <laughs> Um, that looked into for a while that had a lot of these kind of really controversial practices um, and had a lot of sexual practices in the tradition, in their tradition. Um, and so I thought like some of those little, th- I think in the grand story arc, there were a lot of big criticisms, but I thought those little things were really interesting because they rep, they reflected these little known parts of fundamentalist history um, that I thought was were interesting. A lot of people were really quick to criticize its representation of the LDS church. One of the interesting things was it wasn't quick. No one was really kind of quick to criticize its representation of fundamentalism. Was it good? Uh, well, so a couple, was it a good representation? Of well, there were a couple things that I thought were really well done. The first was, um, when Ron and Dan Lafferty go and visit short Creek, they're never members of the short Creek community. Um, but I thought it was, it would have been really easy to put all the women in prairie dresses, but prairie dresses weren't worn yet at that time. That didn't happen until like the 2000s and so, right? or even later. It was in like the eighties. They start to, well, in like the nineties, they start to get more and more kind of prairie dress looking like that. Okay. But I thought that was kind of interesting that they like paid attention to that. Um, and then secondarily, um, I thought the representation of Robert Crossfield was really well done. Oh, because he has his own story, right? Robert yeah, the Crossfield. prophet Onias. Um, yeah. Can you talk about him? Because I, I, Steve Shields talked a little bit about him, but but I don't have a lot of detail on him. Yes. Other than Steve thought he was a terrible person. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I do think he was abusive. He was an abusive father, 
um, an abusive man who taught doctrines that were abusive, um, especially to his family. Um, but he was very similar to Jim Harmston in a lot of ways. One of the things about that time period, the 1980s and 1990s was really a high point in seeing people who were, you know, Sunday school teachers or were doing home meetings and they start their own groups out of that. Uh, and Robert Crossfield was very similar to that story in that he is a Sunday school teacher. He's starting his own home meetings. He's starting Bible studies. Is um, he also in American Fork? Do you know? Uh, he was in the Salem area. Okay. So that's just a little farther south than you talked yeah. about. And he starts to, starts to slowly receive his own revelations. And he ends up um, publishing those revelations under the pseudonym, the prophet Onias. Mm -hmm. um, and he starts his own, the school of the prophets, which eventually is joined by the Lafferty brothers. Um, but that group, I mean, it was always very small, but it spoke to what a lot of people in the 1980s and 1990s were looking for. I mean, the 1980s and 1990s were a time, as you know, of significant change in the LDS church. And with the significant change in the LDS church, there was significant disenfranchisement among a lot of people, especially around the temple. Um, and so the prophet Onias was one of those people that was trying to speak to people's really disheartened feelings toward the direction the LDS church was going. Um, he just happened to also be, as Steve Shields noted, um, not a, a, an abusive person. So, I mean... He wasn't a murderer like the Lafferty's though, right? He was not. And the Lafferty's kind of broke off from him or did he kick him out or do you know? Um, he condemned the murders soon after. Um, very soon after he published a um, statement saying no. Um, when the Lafferty brothers came to the school of the prophets with the revelation um, about that they were going to um, commit this atrocity, um, the school of the prophets did say this isn't a revelation. So they did, the, the group did immediately say, no, this is not from God. Well, you're talking about the revelation where to, I don't know, to kill, to kill Brenda Lafferty, right? Yeah. And I, I don't remember who got Ron or Dan. I get them mixed up all the time. So they, I mean, they couched it in revelation and the, they, there was a revelation to kill Brenda And they Lafferty. brought it forth to the school of the prophets and the school of the prophets said, no, this is not, we're not signing on to whatever nonsense this is. And they just went and did it anyway. And they went and did it anyway. Unfortunately, like tragically, they went and did it anyway. And killed her daughter, her two-year-old daughter Tragic, too yeah, as well. Unfortunately. Um, and she was upset because, was she married to a brother? Um, she was, and she... And she didn't I mean, like their polygamy talk, and right? No, and she was also outspoken against the abuse she saw in the family. I mean, she was, you know, um, her sister has spoken quite a bit about, about Brenda. Um, but... Uh, you know, tragically she dies and the school of the prophets did release a statement soon, like soon after condemning it. But, um, the school of the prophets, you know, it's, it's hard to, right. If you know someone who was close friends with you, who does something horrendous, it's very hard to like, and you're part of the religion. It's very hard to be like, we had nothing to do with it. So the school of the prophets ends up kind of getting a bad name and getting a bad rap after that. Um, and they eventually, Rob, Robert Crossfield, um, dies. I think he dies pretty recently. It was like 2012. Okay. Um, he dies pretty recently. There was a very brief moment where someone claimed to be the successor of Robert Crossfield. He has since recanted. 
Oh. So there is no official successor to Robert Crossfield. Okay. And so the so Robert Crossfield did he kind of stay in the Salem area? Yeah, it didn't expand. Um, it wasn't. He, he didn't move to Canada. Oh, he does for a while. That's what I thought. I heard. I, I thought really he went to Canada. Whole. You don't know. That. I don't know the whole. I don't know the whole story about him. Um, but yeah. Yeah, and so then. Okay. Um, I've seen. I have some fundamentalist friends. I'm sure you do too. Um, a second book of commandments. That was Robert Crossfield. That's what I thought. Yep. It, there's a website, 2bc.org. And com? I think it's that info, if I remember right. Even better. And because um, there are still adherents to the second book of commandments. Are, so, so those are related to Robert Crossfield. Yeah. So, so it does seem like the group's kind of still around. I mean, in a very unorgan, like it's not in an organized fashion. There's no profit that I know of. And that could be new information to me. Yeah. Um, but to my knowledge, there isn't a leader of the Crossfield group or the school of the prophets that officially claims to be the successor of Crossfield. I know at Sun at Sunstone a few years ago, someone did make the claim um, to being the successor, but I know that that was supposedly recanted. I mean, I haven't talked to him, so I can't. <laughs> was he the one that got up and proclaimed he was a prophet? Okay. <laughs> Don't put my face nodding at that. I just don't, because I looked so skeptical. <laughs> I just, one of the things I love about Lindsay is she's like, prophets are a dime a dozen. I know so many. <laughs> well, the, one of the <laughs> interesting funny. things is that um, Jim Harmston also announced his claim at Sunstone. Oh, I didn't know that. Yep. Oh, so we've got a long history. And I only learned that from Ann Wilde. Oh, wow. Yeah, because Ann, um, apparently, he had been like saying, like, no, I'm not going to start a group. No, I'm not going to start a group. And then he announces it. That sounds so. And I'm sure she was like. Hey. She is such a wealth of knowledge. Oh, I know she oh, is. Like, she's such a wealth of knowledge of just the inner workings of the movement for that period of time that is. She's, well, like Ogden Crouch, she's tied oh, yeah. to everybody. You know, oh, yeah. and I know Christchurch. I mean, we did a we did an episode with uh, her and David Patrick mm-hmm. on the fiftieth anniversary of Jesus was married. <laughs> yep, I have a copy of that because uh, they were like, "Oh, this is a great book. Everybody should read it." Um, so uh, yeah, she's she's amazing. So um, so okay, so so that group is is loosely still around. I mean, the documents are, but I don't think it meets in like a formal group. Okay. Maybe I'll have to contact him. Do you know Jacob Vidreen? Yeah. Tell, I need to get him on. I need um, to get him on the is show. Is he with... Cause he, I mean, I'll let him tell his that? story. But, okay. But you, you, he's, I mean... Do you know what group he's in? I'll let you tell. I'll let him tell his story. I'll let him tell. Okay. No, I mean, I there's been so many moments where I've messaged him and been like, do you happen to have this one meeting minute account from this one school of the prophets meeting in 1860, but it happened to be under, and he's like, yep. (laughs) What? Like, I do think he's in a group or part of a group. Cause you know, the whole polygamy denier thing. Oh yeah. The big debate that they did. Um, 
Oh, did he? Was he part of that debate? He. I, I mean, I supposedly there was two. I only saw one, um, the very first time that they debated each other, and I watched uh, it. Oh, I did you did? Watch it. I didn't watch. Yeah, it. I watched it because he told me that they were doing it, and I was just so interested in what. Maybe I should go back. Only because it. I think he. I mean, he's so knowledgeable about the history, and if I were debating, I mean, I. The history I do is more recent. It's not 19th century, and so. If I were debating the 19th century, I wouldn't have felt confident going up against Jacob. <laughs> so I was just so interested. I think there's a new Facebook group that I just got invited to that talks about contemporary evidence for polygamy, and they're trying to provide Nauvoo City Council minutes and things like that. I mean, it's very hard to track a secret practice. Yeah. Turns out. But Joseph Smith... I'm, I'm gonna say it, Rick. He practiced polygamy. Oh, not not a newsflash here. <laughs> Someone's gonna be upset. <laughs> I'm sure. I just think, yeah. You'll I mean, I get think something the, in the comments. <laughs> well, I'm especially, especially the um, like when so I when I first learned about the Joseph denied the Joseph Smith fought polygamy right. arguments. Um, I think the part that was so when I was like, I don't think this is true. Like I don't, it was just so hard to wrap my head around was the argument that Brigham Young actually wrote Doctrine and Covenants 132 or that it was written and like that. Well, I've the, heard it was a forgery, not that Brigham Young wrote it. Or that he had it written. I don't, or that like it was found yeah. in like a shoebox. It was found in like a desk drawer or something. Well, probably. Um, I mean, you know, the argument is it's not a legitimate thing. Right, well, it wasn't it's not written in by Joseph's Joseph. hand. Well, well, of course it's not. Joseph didn't write anything down except I mean, he didn't even write the Book of Mormon down. Because we don't have the original because it was destroyed. Yeah. And then we do have the Kingsbury 132 because it's it's hanging in the Church History Museum. Yeah. Like it's it's on the wall. It's near. It's next to the Death Mass. Well, Emma burnt the other one, right? Right. <laughs> but it's on the. It's next. It's in the room right next to the Death Mask. In the Church History Museum. So we do have the Kingsbury edition, or the Kingsbury... Um, well, the argument is he wasn't a scribe. Why, why would he have written it down? It's a forgery. Correlation is causation. I don't know. But, <laughs> yeah, I've never... I mean, I think it's... I think my concern about it is you have to... You're, to defend just... I mean, first of all, the big question is why does he, why do you need to make him not a polygamist? I think that's a really interesting question. Oh, it's a great question. Like, I think that's the question that I'm most interested in when I talk to Joseph. Joseph's polygamy. not a liar. I've heard that so many times. Right. Well, that's <laughs> fine. I mean, he he did though. A prophet would never lie. But I mean, that's the I think that's the most fascinating question about the Joseph fought polygamy crowd is why do you need this to be the case about him? Um, but secondarily, why are you willing to say that, like, to defend one man is not a liar at the detriment of saying all of these other people are? Like, it's just, it's so focused on vindicating this one person that you're willing to drag everyone. Um, and that is a very strange way of telling history to me, especially with all the affidavits that we have. Um, They're late. Here's the thing. Eliza R. Snow... I don't think she's lying about this. I just, I do not think Eliza Snow's lying about polygamy. I don't. I don't think Eliza Snow's lying about it. And Eliza Snow's ride or die for polygamy. 
Like she, if there's ever a defender of the practice, it's her. Uh, and I just really don't think she's lying about it. Um, but the fact that like propping up Joseph Smith to the detriment of her, like that feels very strange to me. Um, but I think the dire need to make him not a polygamist is fascinating. It's just yeah. a fascinating story that why, why do you need him to be a monogamist? I mean, I like monogamy, however, <laughs> uh, but I'm also not, you know, a part of the restoration, <laughs> part of the non-restored gospel. <laughs> so that, yeah, I think that's a, part it, of the original Christian church. We like to think so. <laughs> the, the Orthodox there, there are like, no so apostasy. are we. Uh, yeah, no, I don't, I, I don't think there was a great apostasy. Um, sorry, listener. I just, I don't. Um, but which is, I mean, fine. I, it's a faith claim and we all have them, but mm -hmm. I just don't believe in that. Um, but yeah, I do think the Joseph fought polygamy debate is one of the most interesting current, current things happening in Mormonism. Um, especially because it's something that's happened so many times historically. This is just the most recent iteration of trying to figure out if polygamy was from Joseph Smith. Um, the RLDS went through that moment. They, mm. they acknowledge he'd practiced polygamy now. Um, but they are a monogamous church, so. They're just a bunch of apostates anyway. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Christina Rossetti. In our final conversation, we're going to talk about the great and abominable church. Is that the Catholic church? And what does Christina think about that? Bruce R. McConkie said it's me, my people. And? You weren't offended? He's allowed to think that. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. It's not like the Catholic Church has high views of the LDS Church, right? Like, it's not like we've been just so kind to LDS people that, like... A little blowback's okay. Yeah, it's fine. I'll take it. It's fine. <laughs> if you'd like to hear the entire interview uncut, you can hear the audio only at patreon.com slash gospeltangents. For just $5 a month, you can hear the entire interview with no interruptions. If you want to watch the entire video for just $8 a month, you can also sign up at Patreon or on YouTube.com slash GospelTangents and just subscribe here. You can watch the entire video uncut before everybody else. Also, if you'd like to continue to support Gospel Tangents, you can either sign up for our $10 or $20 memberships or you can get some cool gear like this hat. Um, I've got the coffee mugs like this here. Uh, we've got sweatshirts and t-shirts and I'm even thinking about ties. Somebody said they wanted a tie. So I'll see if I can get that on my store. So go to gospeltangents.com store and you can get some Gospel Tangents gear. So you don't want to miss that. So. Anyway, thanks for listening. If you'd like to check out some of our other videos, check out here. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.